Well, good morning. This is attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO, answering your questions, giving out some advice on this beautiful Sunday. And here we go into another week of interesting legal news and cases and questions. And of course, we are taking your questions. The number here is 1-800-321-WPRO or 401-438-9776. Now, a uh, lot of cases have been happening. And if you're just listening to this show, uh, we've been on, I think we're going on nine years, going on 10 years. I I can't recall at this point, but in any event, I've been uh, practicing in Rhode Island and Massachusetts as a licensed attorney for 26 years. So I bring all of that experience, trial work, Supreme Court work, zoning matters, probate, Medicaid planning, and uh, all that to the table to help guide you and point you in the right direction and make sure that you're getting some sound legal advice to help you through whatever situation you're, you're having. You know, many times it's the smallest things that become the big things. And often that's when somebody who understands uh, multiple areas of the law, understands how real estate taxation or real estate transactional work intersects with Medicaid planning or probate. Understand how these different areas of law touch one another. And that's what experience gives you. Whether it's something as mundane as a landlord-tenant matter or something much more complex as a superior court appeal for a probate case, that's where you're going to go to talk to somebody like myself who has that expertise and experience, puts it on the table for you every Sunday here. Now, of course, when we're talking about legal rights, you hear me talk many times about asserting legal rights, not asserting legal rights, what happens when you sit on your hands, and what happens when you don't and you actually take some affirmative action. This is what this show is about. And of course, as I said in the beginning, many small things become big things. And, you know, what do I mean by that? Um, well, often, let's talk about something simple and or something not as complex, so to speak. We'll talk about deeds. So when you own real estate with somebody, whether you inherit it or whether you uh, uh, purchase it, you can own that property as a tenant in common, which means that your share would go to your estate, or you can own it as a joint tenant, which means that your share would go to the other person. So this is where I see a lot of people get tripped up. Many times folks will come in and see me and say, you know, I inherited this property from my parents and the deed, um, my share was supposed to go to my family, but um, I'm not sure how the deed is worded. And often I'll look at what the deed says and the deed might very well say joint tenants. And I'll say, do you understand that that means that if you're not here, you're not available, that you're no longer on this earth, your share goes to the other person. They said, no, absolutely not. Now, many times folks don't realize that because maybe the attorney who was representing the probate just assumed 
assumed that, in fact, that's what the parties wanted. Now, the opposite can have the opposite effect, right? We could have it where a deed would say tenants in common. And in that situation, when somebody passes away, in order for title, for that deed title to be transferred from the person who was the owner to maybe their spouse, maybe uh, somebody else, a child, um, you have to go to probate. So probate is there for the purpose of effectively saying that recognizing that this person is no longer with us, that they're going to certify a will, and that will says that it goes to this particular person. Now, in that situation, a deed can be transferred from the estate to the party who's supposed to inherit the property. And it sounds like a lot of work, and it is. Unfortunately, probate is not a short process. So there can be unintended consequences either way. You could have a situation where mom and dad passed away, and let's say they owned four pieces of property. They left, and this is actually a real-world situation. They left it to three siblings. Um, one of the siblings passed away um, untimely at a rather young age. However, he had three children. Now, the spouse came in to see me and said, you know, what am I supposed to do for my kids now that they have inherited the property? And I said, well, let's look at these deeds. So I actually took a look at the deeds and the deeds said joint tenancy which means that his share automatically went to his other two siblings. And she said he never would have agreed to that. And I said, I don't think he knew that that's what was on the deed. So do they lose one third of their, of their dad's share in this estate? Well, fortunately, this family was a close family. And the surviving brothers and sisters did not believe that would be the case, and also did give from each sale of the property one-third in trust for the benefit of the children. So that's a positive. That's a positive thing. It doesn't always happen that way. And so when you're in a situation where you don't know what's going to happen, have your attorney look at it. I look at these things all the time just for the small details you know, when they say the devil's in the details, it really is. And you have to understand that the small details can have a big impact at a later date. This can be the same thing as a contract. For example, when you sign a contract with somebody, you may be consenting that jurisdiction for that contract is in Delaware or is in New Jersey, or is in California. Well, how does that affect you? Well, if you believe that the other party breached the contract, you may be bound to bring your case in California, Delaware, or New Jersey. It's kind of scary when you think about it. That's called a forum selection clause. And now that type of clause is ordinarily in a contract um, when you're dealing with a larger company and you don't have negotiating power to negotiate it away, or you simply you don't catch it or your attorney misses it. So have these documents reviewed 
understand what legal rights you're assigning when you sign. And if you have a question about a deed or about a document or about a probate, talk to your attorney or an attorney such as myself as soon as you can. And that way, you know what your rights are. So vitally important to assert your rights. And one of the things I'm just going to explain briefly, I, I do a lot of appellate work, appellate from lower courts to higher courts, um, appellate from zoning board decisions to uh, superior court, appellate work from probate court decisions to superior courts. So that's a large part of my practice. And I've been doing that for a very, very long time, obviously 26 years. When we're talking about that and we're talking about appellate work, we're talking about strict time frames. So let me give you an example. In Rhode Island, if you're unhappy with an order that a judge signs in probate court, you have 20 days to file an appeal. Now, that's not 20 business days. That's not 20 days plus holidays, Saturdays and Sundays. It's 20 days. And if you're dealing with an attorney who doesn't know this rule, or if you don't assert your rights right away, you are forever barred from appealing that order. So the 20-day rule can really come back to hurt you. And that's very similar to zoning board decisions and some other appeal decisions. And so the question becomes, if you're dissatisfied with something in order of a court, you have to assert those rights. And what I said there was, when I talked about in the very beginning, devil in the details, the devil's in the details there. Because 20 days means 20 days according to the statute. And if you fail to meet that 20-day mark, you're out of the box, which means you lose your right to make that appeal. So these types of issues come up on a regular basis. And they're regular things that we deal with with clients, um, helping them through this legal system that we're all subject to. Now, hopefully you never need an attorney. Maybe you will need an attorney. For example, maybe you're selling your house and you live out of state. You probably want somebody like myself who's done maybe seven, 8,000 real estate closings to help you through the process to make sure that there are no surprises when you get to the closing table. Maybe you're selling a business. You want somebody like myself who's done or maybe over a thousand business transaction deals over the, over 26 years that understands what needs to happen. So, you know, be proactive with what it is that you need to accomplish. You know, look, we all know that at certain times we may need an attorney. And when you do, you want to be proactive on it. Every time you sit back in the eyes of the law, it's basically called acquiescence or acceptance. It means basically you implicitly accepted whatever happened. So it's so important to understand that. And by listening to this show, you learn about your rights, you learn about what to do, what not to do, and you have a better understanding. Now, my name's attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips here on WPRO. Of course, the number is 1-800-321-WPRO or 401-438-9776.
401-438-9776. I'm your host of Legal Tips here on WPRO. Another beautiful Sunday. Boy, as we swing into summer, it came really fast this year. I hope it slows down so we can all enjoy it. But again, if you if you have a legal question, you're facing a legal dilemma, or you just have some advice to somebody out there, this is your chance to talk about legal news and information. Stacking Benjamins with Joe and his good friend, OG, not only has great financial insight, it's laid back with humor, too. The Len Penzo sandwich survey. I wanted to know, was it really cheaper to brown bag it every day, or was it cheaper to go through the school lunch? And the most expensive sandwich of all. 46% increase. This is the first time a, a sandwich sandwich has ever touched five bucks before anybody gags on that though it's a great sandwich find out more by searching the stacking benjamins podcast wherever you listen answering your questions giving out some advice on this beautiful sunday and here we go into some more interesting news and uh questions that i've received during the week and actually i thought that this was a a relatively interesting tidbit because i kind of feel like it opens the door for perhaps um, it opens the door for perhaps uh, attorneys and clients to establish new relationships. So what do I mean by that? Let, there was any there was a decision by the Rhode Island Supreme Court Ethics Advisory Panel, and what this panel had to do was it said it was originally when it, when somebody hires an attorney in Rhode Island and they have to pay that attorney, they can't uh, enter into a business arrangement with that attorney for payment. So what do I mean by that? So theoretically, if I said, Stephen, I'm going to, you know, somebody, somebody's going to hire Stephen and they come in and maybe they have 500 shares, they can't uh, pledge those stocks to you to cover your fees or they can't say, for example, we have a mom and pop business. We're going to give you a 10% interest in our business to cover your legal fees. It doesn't work that way. And the reason is, the very important reason is, because an attorney has a duty of loyalty to the client. So if the attorney has an interest in the client's business or business affairs, then now they have a duty to the business and to the client, and it creates a conflict. And so apparently an attorney petitioned the ethics advisory board for an opinion. And they said, well, look, this, this client wants to pay us or hire us, and it's going to be a very expensive type of case. Can we take a lien on their property for the legal fees, which means we would get paid back at a later date if the property were ever sold, or if in fact the, um, property wherever refinanced theoretically and uh, the court, the supreme court advisory panel came back and said yes uh matter of fact we're going to say that that can happen as long as the client understands and waives any conflict i suppose that they have they understand that they have the right to have the, a, a neutral their own attorney uh review all the documents and make sure that that's correct and um, that there are certain other parts or disclosures, but yes, an attorney can do that. So how do I see this helping individuals in cases? Well, let's say, for example, you're in the middle of an adverse possession case and somebody is suing you to take a portion of your land. Adverse possession cases get very expensive 
very quickly and I've handled so many of them and it all depends on how the case goes. So for example, what do I mean by that? Let's say you're battling uh, Raytheon over adverse possession, just for argument's sake. They have in-house attorneys, they have a lot of money. And so this case is going to get very expensive very quickly. Let's say you're just battling your neighbor and they're in the same financial position you are, and maybe you file a complaint for adverse possession for two feet of their land. Well, they might answer the complaint, but most likely we're probably going to end up reaching a resolution. Well, let's say you don't have the money to defend that type of complaint. With this ethics advisory opinion, basically what the Supreme Court said is, well, you can enter into an agreement with the client to put a lien on their property to secure payment of any fees due to the attorney. So that could help in the sense that you may be in a situation where you're not able to afford, but you have a significant amount of equity in your property. And now here's this alternative means of being able to seek justice because you're able to pay for your attorney. And I, you know, I kind of look at that and I say to myself, I think that's a, a rather important type of development in the law. Of course, there are those inherent conflicts of, you know, obviously the person has to know their rights, that they have the right to have their own attorney and all that. But the reality is it may free up somebody to be able to fight a case. And, you know, that that's the end of the day, because if you if you're not in the fight, you're never going to have a chance at justice. Now, one of the questions I received this week was a fairly interesting question. Um, a part of my practice has to deal with bankruptcy, uh, consumer bankruptcies, whether it's what's commonly referred to as Chapter 7 bankruptcy, which is a bankruptcy where you say, look, court, I have all this credit card debt. You know, I've lost my job. I'd like to seek relief from this credit card debt or payday loans or or even perhaps um, um, medical debt. And, and you're asking for the court for relief from that. Or the other type of bankruptcy is what's called a reorganization. And in that situation, we're saying, court, it's one usually one of two things. Either A, I make a, a lot of money. Maybe I make $150,000 a year, but I'm paying you know $3,000 a month in credit cards. I'd like to consolidate them, not pay 30% interest, and um, be able to keep my house and keep working so that I can pay some of this back. Or perhaps you're behind on your mortgage payments and you say, court, I'd like to consolidate what I'm behind, get current on my mortgage and pay that through my reorganization. So in either bankruptcy, it's very rare that someone would lose something, lose their house, lose a car. Um, when you're When you're talking to an experienced attorney like myself, I've been doing it 26 years, I can kind of tell you and guide you what your rights are as a, uh, what's called a debtor, which means that, and then there's a creditor. So the debtor is the person who borrows, a creditor is the one who lends. And so it's a very useful tool for financial planning to get back on your feet. Most of the time, People will call me up after two or three years and say, Stephen, we're buying a house. We want you to represent us at the closing because, you know, you told us in two to three years we'd be able to buy a house and we really didn't believe you, but it's actually happening. 
So good things like that. I get a lot of calls like that. You know, a lot of people call me up and ask me after the fact, you know, you know, we were a little skeptical, but it really came through the way you said. So this person raised a question here. And they said that somebody obtained a judgment against them. And um, they found out that this particular credit card put a lien on their house. Uh, They lost their job in December and um, only their spouse is working and they have two children. And so what can they do? Well, first of all, uh, the going through the bankruptcy process will allow you to discharge or relieve yourself from that judgment. That's a good thing. So now you don't have to worry about wage attachments when you start working again. You don't have to worry about um, constables coming to your house if you start working again. But also, it gives you the option and ability to remove the lien from your house so you don't lose your house. And in the future, once that lien is off of your home, you're able to say, hey, I'm if I want to sell my home, I don't have to worry about that debt. So you see, when somebody records a lien on your home and it's a judgment, the judgment earns interest. And a lot of people don't realize that. So when you're sued for $1,000 and the person obtains a judgment a year later, in that one year, that debt has accrued 12% interest. Now, let's say they put a lien on your house and the lien sits on there for another nine years. So now you have 10 years of interest or 120%. That $1,000 has now become maybe 2,400, right? So all of a sudden, when you're talking $10,000, now it's $24,000. If you're talking $20,000, think of how it compounds. And judgment liens stay on file in City Hall for 20 years in Rhode Island, which means that if somebody sues you and get a judgment lien, they put it against your house for the next 20 years. If you ever want to go to sell, refinance, whatever it may be, You're going to be in a situation where you have to pay this debt off plus all this interest accruing at 12% a year. Now, every state's uh, accrual of interest is different, but there's pre-judgment interest and then there's post-judgment interest. So this person's question said, you know, should I consider bankruptcy before I'm able to get back into the workforce? And, And my answer to them was yes, because we can accomplish two tasks for you. Number one, we can relieve you of the obligation with this judgment lien, which means when you get back to work, you can actually start rebuilding. And number two, we can get that lien off of your property. Now, there's separate processes and there's, there's you know, it's very procedural and it's very detailed in the procedure and you have to know what you're doing. And I've been doing that for 26 years. So for me, I understand the process, much like probate, much like real estate closings, much like appeal processes. Everything has a process, and you have to understand how the process works and what fits in what. But this is a really good question to talk about because I think a lot of people are afraid of broaching this topic because uh, the you know the bankruptcy word has become you know a, a really bad word, but. All it really is, is a financial planning tool. And of course, um, that's, you know, helping people through that and seeing the positive effects of 
how after they come out of bankruptcy, that they're able to rebuild, that they're able to buy a house, that they're able to have a life without being burdened from this debt and, and the prior mistakes that, you know, we all make mistakes that they're able to do. So a lot of times folks will come in and see me and say, Stephen, we don't know what to do. My um, parents need um, long-term care services, right? And we didn't plan for it in advance. And now we're in a situation where it's, um, we're, we're saying to ourselves, what do we do, right? What, what do we do? How do we, how do we work this? What do we do? Um, they didn't want to sign anything before. Um, many times we'll have to jump into some sort of emergency uh, repair situation where we're saying to ourselves, okay, what do we do to fix this situation? You know, how do we fix this situation? And, you know, obviously the more time we have to plan in advance for Medicaid, the better off it is. So many times we're talking about situations where we have worst case scenarios. And what do I mean by that? I mean that we really have a um, situation where um, parents didn't want to do anything. And because they didn't want to do anything, now they're no longer here. And there's a chance that whatever was going to be available for the kids, whatever that might have been, um, is no longer going to be available. So we, you know, unfortunately, because of neglect or negligence or just overall thickness, let's say, for argument's sake, you know, we have a situation where um, there's a chance everything could be lost. And for no reason, you know, just just for no reason, for no reason, for, for um, nominal purposes. And what do I mean by that? So the way this works and the way things work with um, Medicaid, asset protection, probate avoidance, the way that happens is we, we go through a situation where if we have enough time, we try to affect a plan that can make sure that not only it avoids probate, but that when the person is no longer here, Medicaid can't reach back and try to claw back some of those assets. What I mean by claw back, I mean reach back because there's a five-year look back on transfers and then try to say, we want that money back. So the biggest mistake I'll see is a family will come in and see me and say, dad just wrote a check for $500,000 to all of the grandchildren a year ago. Now he needs to go into a long-term care facility. They're asking for five years of tax returns. What do we do? And the first question I say is, where is the money? And they say, well, it was spent on education. It was spent on vacations. It was spent on this. And, you know, unfortunately, Medicaid, because of that five-year window, has the right to do that. So you have to plan it appropriately. You have to implement plans that will protect as much of your assets. Now, the way I explain this to everybody in my office when we meet is I say there's really like three categories in the Medicaid system. And I look at it like there's category one, two, and three. So category one would be, let's say when you're not as fortunate, obviously you can't have people in the street, elderly folks in the street, 
not being able to have a roof over their head, especially if they need long-term care services. That's why Medicaid is there. We have to take care of we have to take care of our elderly uh, parents, grandparents. Then you have folks who maybe are very well off. You know, maybe a lot of you know a lot of people listening to the show maybe have um, been able very fruit very fruitful um, and been and been able to develop a nice size estate plan where they have a significant assets, and as a result of that, they have the ability to say, "Hey, look, we're going to." Um, pay and stay home. Why Why would we pay a third party? We'll just stay home and have nurses and CNAs come and take care of us, right? I mean, then you have everybody in the middle. I guess that's the other 80%, you know, uh, the middle class, so to speak, where maybe you saved up enough to pay off your mortgage. Maybe you saved up enough to put some money in the bank. But Medicaid says, well, if you need care, you can't have more than $4,000 of assets. So pay up that's where families are impacted the most. That's where I see the biggest devaluation of what could be uh, an asset that could go to a family. And that's why advanced Medicaid planning, I've been doing it for 26 years, tax estate planning, probate work is so vitally important to incorporate. If you see your parents at that point where you think you can catch it early enough now, what happens if you don't catch it early enough? Are there other plans we can put into place? Yes. Yes, there are. There are other rules that we can use in the Medicaid system, which involve purchase agreements, which involve um, deed transfers to spouses and other loopholes that we can put into place to try to protect and preserve as much as we can. Okay. So the number here is 1-800-321-WPRO or 401-438-9776. My name's attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips. And we have Kate from Warwick with a question regarding revocable trust. Hi, Kate. You're on the air with Steven. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, what you were talking about is kind of what I'm interested in. I'm thinking about putting my house in a revocable trust. Now, will okay. that protect it from... Um, Medicaid and all that stuff and that five-year plan. Because yeah, I realize, really good question. I realize so, that a revocable trust, you can change it at any time. Yep. Is that correct? Okay, so yes. could you explain to me if I could put my house in that to protect yes. me from the nursing home and stuff? Okay, so a revocable trust, what the difference is, so there's two different ways you can structure a trust. You can have a trust which is called revocable. And basically what that means is you remain in control of your property. So you have the right to make changes. You have the right to amend. And you you can change beneficiaries. You can sell property. You can take put property in, take property out. And so that's so, you know, very important in a lot of people's ideas because you maintain control. Now, when you're no longer here, your trust can no longer be changed. And so whoever you name as the beneficiary of your trust, right? Whoever that person Mm -hmm. or persons are, when you're no longer here, they have to abide by the strict construction of your trust. So that's why a lot of people will use trust. And the big factor on even using a revocable trust is probate avoidance. Probate is a six-month process. You know, people can come forward to object. Basically, anybody can. You can have a brother, a sister, a cousin, somebody come forward because it's an open court hearing 
to object, to contest. And that's why we want to use, we want to use trust to avoid that. And so that's very important. And um, what you're doing is very important. Now, on the other side of it, does that necessarily give you the protections that you're looking for from um, what's called the, you know, in the event you did need long-term care? Well, because you keep all of that control and you hold on to all of that control, basically you're treated as the owner. So long-term care, when you're no longer here, would still say that they're entitled to claw back some of the money, okay, from your um, from your estate to even from your revocable trust to to um, pay back the debts that you've incurred. So that can happen. That can happen, and that's with a revocable trust. Now, some other options that you have is you know you can use for your real estate for your home you can use what's called a irrevocable trust or a mm -hmm. Medicaid trust. And in that situation, what's happening is the Medicaid trust um, basically says that you're giving up some of that control, okay? And by yeah. giving up some of that control, you're basically, relinqu because you're relinquishing control, you continue to have those sort of protections. Your property would be protected from the um, so-called nursing home putting or Medicaid, it's actually Medicaid, putting a lien on your property. And so that's using an irrevocable trust. And you're actually taking your property and giving up some control. So I think of, remember the Ronco uh commercials set it and forget it remember that he had the little devices yeah. and he, he would set it and forget it that was his big thing that's kind of what an irrevocable trust is so when you set up an irrevocable trust you set it and you forget it which means that for all intents and purposes it's set up it's there you've named your beneficiaries but there's going to be no changes to it but by doing that by giving up that little bit of control. And when you really think about it, there's not too much control you're giving up because you're still picking who the beneficiaries are. You get sure. your protections from Medicaid clawing back some of the money um, to get, you know, to, to take some of that money to pay for your care. So you do receive some protections in that situation. But not, it's not as good as a revocable, irrevocable trust. An irrevocable, they can't take anything. A revocable, they could, um, they could claw back, as you say it, and, and take money. <clears throat> Am yep. I correct in saying yep. that? So the benefit, the benefit with the irrevocable is the, the benefit with the irrevocable is the uh, probate avoidance that you are able to control your asset, you're able to pick your beneficiaries, and that you have the right to um, change it in the future. The benefit with the irrevocable trust is that you can still pick your beneficiaries. You still get probate avoidance. You also get the added benefit of Medicaid protection. And then on top mm -hmm. of that, on top of that, you have a, um, but you have to, on top of that, you, you're giving up some control 
to make changes in the future. Okay, now if, <clears throat> excuse me, if I were to put it, the house into a revocable trust, would I be able to take out um, like a reverse mortgage or, <clears throat> excuse me, or, or like a, a PLC, a personal line of credit on that if it was in a revocable trust? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, yes. In an irre- That's could. a very good question. In an irrevocable trust, ordinarily you can't take out mortgages on an irrevocable trust. So in other words, you're not going to be able to take out a home equity line of credit or a conventional mortgage. You'd have to take it out of trust to do that. On a right. revocable no trust, reason. yeah, on a revocable trust, many times banks, because you retain that control, banks will um, allow you to take out that type of mortgage. So many times folks will come in and I'll tell them, I'll say, look, why don't you go get a home equity line of credit now? And that way it's good for 15 years and you can draw on it if you need it. And then we'll put your home into an irrevocable trust. I mean, that's usually the answer to that problem. If you're worried about needing money in the future. Oh, all right. Well, I, I didn't realize that. I sh- that's, a, yeah. that's a good idea. That's a good yeah. idea. Well, thank, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Oh, excellent question. Thank you for calling in, Kate. You got it. So here it's time for kickoff, and the Believe Podcast will get you ready for the new season. If you don't dominate in the running game, you won't win this football game. Believe has podcasts covering all 32 professional teams and many of your favorite college teams, too. He was always kind of one step ahead of everybody. Sideline to sideline, end zone to end zone. He's been such a part of the fabric of this team, uh, so closely associated with the city, with championship-level football. Search BLEAV Podcasts wherever you listen. Here we go. You're coming home from work one day, let's say one fine day, and all of a sudden you see your neighbor putting up a fence. Now, this fence is going what appears to be on your property, and you are astounded because you've always had a good relationship with this person. Uh, You've never had any ill words. You, You know, you share, you help shovel each other's driveway. It's never been an issue. So you see this fence going up and you're saying, what's going on? It's like taking half of my yard. So you go knock on the door and you say, hey, Bob, you know, or Sally, you know, what's, well, what's happening? And they say, well, we had our property surveyed and we decided to put a fence up. And you say, well, right, but um, look at where you're putting the fence. It's on the other side of the Avervites by about two feet. And now it's in the middle of my yard and the fence is actually going right up to the side of my shed and I can't even get in it. What do you, why can you wait? Well, no. And then that person gets all defensive and an argument ensues because you feel it's not very neighborly, which probably it isn't. And uh, here we go into a situation where uh, now we have some sort of uh, dispute. So what are your legal rights and what are their legal rights? Well, on one side of the fence, literally, we have the person putting the fence up. And they said, well, we had a survey. We pay taxes on that land. That's our land. We have the right to have our land. But on the other side of the fence, we have the individual who has occupied, used that property for an extended period of time. It's always been considered a part of their property. In other words, the Abravites were there. There's a clear property line between the two parties. And it seems unfair that you've had the maintenance. You've 
improve the property to all of a sudden have somebody chop off a large segment of your real estate. And so this is where the question of adverse possession comes into play. And the reality is that that question is always a question of fact for the court. But what do you do in the meantime? Well, the first thing you could do is you could hire your attorney like myself, and we would go into court and get what's called an injunction. We would ask the court to say, court, wait, let's pause this fence building for a little bit until we figure out what the facts here are. Do we have an adverse possession claim or don't we? And that would be your first step. But of course, now you have to live with this person next door. You're now suing. I know it's an unfortunate circumstance, but the reality is if you do nothing and they reclaim that land, then that land's gone, going to be gone forever because essentially you acquiesced, you relinquished. So there's another example of sitting on your hands, but also an example of somebody not being very neighborly. A knock on the door probably could have resolved this whole issue if he knocked on the door and said, this is what we're planning on doing. Now, my name is attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. My office number is 401-490-4900, 401-490-4900. If you listen to this show, I've been doing this work for 26 years. If you're dealing with a legal problem, a legal dilemma, you don't know where to turn. Former Navy SEAL Sean Ryan shares real stories from real people from all walks of life on The Sean Ryan Show. Guest Brandon Fugel. Now, Skimwalker Ranch is the most Googled location in the entire world. For whatever reason, we're seeing the highest level of, of UFO sightings and paranormal activity. And this has been going on for decades, if not millennia. And we're finally bringing it to the public's attention. The Sean Ryan Show on YouTube or wherever you listen.